All right, let's, uh, so now we're going to translate current and emerging therapies into enhanced management. This is a really target focus on IL-17 and IL-23. We, we know that people are very familiar with the, with the TNF pathway, uh, and so we're going to focus on the newer pathways now. I'm still the same person. I still have the same disclosures. Um, and so, uh, so moderate severe psoriasis really, you know, what is it? I sort of got at this in the last talk. I essentially, it's people who have psoriasis that can't respond to topicals because it's too widespread uh, and or really Im impairs their health-related quality of life. And we're talking about at least one and a half million people in the U.S., over 30 million people worldwide. And these folks, as I alluded to in the earlier talk, they have a higher risk of major cardiovascular events, uh, diabetes, and renal disease. They die about five years younger than they should based on their age-appropriate uh, risk factors for, for mortality. And I tried to allude to that body surface area is not the only factor defining moderate severe psoriasis. So in my practice, I have plenty of patients who only have scalp psoriasis. Treating scalp psoriasis. So in my practice, I have plenty of patients who only have scalp psoriasis. Treating scalp psoriasis topically is misery for a lot of our patients and often ineffective and is highly emotionally or physically burdensome for them. Uh, genital psoriasis, of course, is highly uh, burdensome for patients as well. Uh, and I have patients who have this isolated genital psoriasis, only affects their, their penis, and we still use biologics in that setting. And of course, palmar plantar disease is highly disabling. Um, this is some recent data from my lab. So I mentioned earlier that I do a lot of research in this area, where we want to understand the uh, prevalence of stigmatizing views in our population and what patients experience every day. And so when you survey people using like Amazon Turk, this is general people out in the population, you ask them about psoriasis, show them some pictures of people with psoriasis, what you find is that nearly 40% said they would not want to shake hands with someone who has psoriasis. That's kind of a devastating finding if you think about that, uh, because this is one of our most basic ways that we interact with each other uh, in social environments. Uh, you know, a third, and then when we ask them about uh, uh, endorsing stereotypes, roughly a third, a third, a third thinks psoriasis is contagious, affects only the skin, and it's not a serious disease. Uh, you can imagine if you're a person with psoriasis trying to sort of work in society here, uh, your disease is misunderstood, uh, and there's a lack of empathy for patients dealing with this. And despite how tough the disease can be for people, there's still a lot of undertreatment. There's a recent uh, analysis of claims data, so this is probably a best-case scenario. And where they estimated was that about 60% of people with moderate severe psoriasis weren't even treated in the previous year for their disease, 60%. This is an insured population, commercially insured population. Imagine if we're looking at you know, the, the broader uh, community out there. And those who were treated... Uh, about half of them lapsed in their treatment. They weren't treated continuously. Well, you get the sense that what we really still have in our population is unfettered, ongoing chronic inflammation in the skin uh, for these patients. Unfettered, ongoing chronic inflammation in the skin uh, for these patients. Uh, how many of you here for, uh, participate in the PQRS or MIPS program? Yeah, we've got some hands. Okay, good. So we have a, an outcome-based measure we created a couple of years ago for psoriasis. Uh, it's the only dermatology outcome measure in MIPS, so we're proud of that. All of our other ones are process ones. Um, and so our targets are having a global assessment less than or equal to 2, which is pretty easy. That's mild disease, not clear, almost clear. B or BSA less than 3%, or POSI less than 3, no one does a POSI. Or DLQI less than 5, that means you have mild to minimal impairment in quality of life. Uh, and we see in 2015 and 2017, we see an increase in the number of people reporting and a decrease in their performance rate. You can just choose just one of these, by the way. So you say, I'm going to choose a global assessment. And I'll let you know how many are achieving a global assessment of mild or less. Uh, and so roughly 60% performance rate in 2017 
of meeting these quality metrics. We have a lot of room for improvement, quality metrics. We have a lot of room for improvement. Uh, and we need to f figure out ways to translate our improving therapies to leading to better outcomes for our patients. Let's talk a little bit about the pathophysiology of psoriasis, a disease of localized and systemic inflammation, uh, epidermal hyperproliferation. I like to explain to patients uh, that in psoriasis it takes about a month for a skin cell to turn over and be born. I'm sorry, in, in, in normal skin, it's a month for it to turn over and be born. In psoriasis, it's about a day or two. Okay? That impresses patients. They understand, well, this is why I'm so frickin' flaky. And I constantly, like, I, w I wake up, I get rid of my scales, uh, and then like, five hours later, I'm full of scales again. It helps them understand what's going on. And then there's a lot of angiogenesis that's going on. Uh, you see these dilated capillary loops. The body needs to develop a lot of blood vessels to support all this epidermal turnover, and that's appreciated what's called the auspice sign. The skin bleeds very easily. And again, patients, I think, often appreciate understanding what's going on with them. Like, why is it that my skin's bleeding on my blanket easily? And again, patients, I think, often appreciate understanding what's going on with them. Like, why is it that my skin's bleeding on my blankets? And we can explain this to them so you understand what's going on biologically. What's great about psoriasis and what's really fun studying this area and treating patients is that we have a, a good understanding of the immunopathogenesis that results in logical, targeted approaches. So the first thing I explain to the patients is on the left side, you see the, the triggers here, is that the keratinocytes um, and the melanocytes, cells in the skin, make peptides that the, bodies, the body gets confused by. The immune system reacts in an autoimmune manner to skin proteins that are completely normal. And I explain that if you think about it, this is how the body's idea was, is that if I had like an infection in my skin, this is how I'd fight it off, let's flake it off. That was how we evolved. There's an evolutionary advantage to have this, uh, this type of immune response. Of course, in modern day, it's not very advantageous for people, but it's not contagious, the skin is not infected. If anything, people with psoriasis have cleaner skin. It's upstream, and we have four TNF inhibitors approved for cutaneous disease. These are all approved for joint disease as well, as well as other different inflammatory conditions. We have one uh, drug that blocks uh, IL-12 and 23, used to kinumab, it's a P40 antibody drug. We have uh, two drugs approved, a third about to be approved that target IL-23. Uh, we have two approved drugs that block IL-17A, ixekizumab, second kinumab, and a new one uh, coming to phase three, bimekizumab, which blocks both IL-17A and IL-17F. I'm sure you're saying to yourself, who cares? What do you need to block F for? Well, I'm gonna show you soon, okay? Stay, t stay tuned, that's a teaser. Uh, and then, if that wasn't enough for you, uh, we have brodalumab, which actually blocks the receptor itself, the IL-17 receptor itself. So in theory, you're blocking all sorts of subtypes of IL-17 when you use brodalumab. And I think this is a very helpful diagram from my, my buddy Andy Blauvelt. And I think this is a very helpful diagram from my, my buddy Andy Blauvelt. Uh, Andy was at NIH many years, uh, and then he went to uh, uh, OHSU. Now he's in a private setting in Oregon, does a lot of research in psoriasis. And what he's showing you is the different pathways of immunology and what you would predict based on downstream what infections you may be susceptible to. So, you know, if you're looking at, say, a TNF pathway all the way over here, you're blocking all these pathways here, and that leads to susceptibility to all these types of infections, viral, atypical infections, um, uh, mycobacteria, things of that nature. Uh, if you're looking at things that are more in the IL-17 pathway, it's fairly narrow all the way down here, and you're looking at Candida and Staph aureus. Candida clearly has been reproduced in the trials. People are more prone to yeast infections. Candida, I'm sorry, Staph, of course, would be very worrisome, has not been 
clearly shown to be a risk of these drugs, so we have to keep looking for that. And the IL-12, 20-logical therapy. Uh, you know, maybe immunosuppressive is a little bit of a strong word. I probably wouldn't use that with a patient. Immunomodulatory is a better word for patients. Uh, so as we talked about in the last section, I talked to people about being up-to-date on age-appropriate cancer screening. And, you know, this week I ordered a mammogram for my patient. I mean, she's a young woman. She's 40. Uh, she wants to be screened. Uh, you know, she's got two young kids. She's a busy immigration attorney. So you can imagine how busy she is. She's an immigration attorney. Um, and uh, so, you know, she's not going to get this done if she has to go to another doctor, get a prescription, and go someplace else. A pen, she gets a prescription, goes downstairs, gets her mammogram done, boom, she's it's done. Uh, consider what, uh, vaccinations for flu, pneumonia, shingles, potentially others. I usually try and get the flu shot to patients annually uh, in my clinic, and we encourage shingles. Uh, we do TB screening at baseline, and then I repeat it annually if there's risk factors. And I've had, had patients sort of convert over the years and develop active TB, usually with international travel. You know, they had no risk factors to go to Cuba, and they had to pick up TB in Cuba, things of that nature. You know, they had no risk factors to go to Cuba, and they had to pick up TB in Cuba, things of that nature. Um, but my patients who are local, they really don't go very far outside of Philadelphia. Uh, they're not in places where they're exposed to TB. I stopped doing uh, tuberculosis screening, counseling a patient that we're not going to do the annual screening, so they're aware of this. Uh, assess and treat infections aggressively. You often will hold this rises drug. And there's a lot of nuances. The cost is often, choice is often dr driven by insurance or cost issues. And so as a result, you can't just be like, you know what, I'm going to use TNFs, I'm done. Like, you really, if you can treat the disease, you have to know the whole armamentarium very quickly at the four or five patients you're going to run into a situation where you need to use a drug that maybe you weren't planning to use. So uh, used to kinumab, there's a P40 inhibitor, approved for psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease at higher dosing, pediatric psoriasis. So uh, nice to know what other diseases the drug's approved for, because occasionally I get in trouble with someone has Crohn's. I'm like, oh. Uh, it's cousin briakinumab. This one got halted for development in phase three. It had safety signals for cancer, infection, and mace. Okay? So this is a reminder that uh, the antibody we're using and the dose of it matters. Okay? We haven't really had the same degree of signals in usakinumab that we saw in briakinumab, despite them having similar MOA. Okay, the IL-17 inhibitors, secukinumab, this is approved for psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. ICSI is up for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Brodalumab uh, is uh, approved for psoriasis only currently. And then the IL-23 inhibitors, guselkimab and Tildra, are both approved for psoriasis. Arizankizumab uh, should be approved any minute. Uh, my phone, I put my phone in, in sleep mode so it won't get disturbed, so someone can check their phone and see if it's been approved. Um, it was approved in Europe recently, approved in Japan. Uh, and then Mirakizumab, the newest kid in the box, I'll show some phase two data. But my phone, I put my phone in, in sleep mode so it won't get disturbed, so someone can check their phone and see if it's been approved. Um, it was approved in Europe recently, approved in Japan. Uh, and then Mirakizumab, the newest kid in the box, I'll show some phase two data. All right, so I want to make sure we're on the same page about what a POSI endpoint is, what a POSI 75 is, a POSI 90 is. Because we need to understand what this means clinically for people. And so uh, on the left side of your screen is a person at baseline. They have a POSI, 70, uh, POSI 25. And what that means is we're looking at how red, how scaly, um, and thick their patches are, and the overall amount of body surface area involved. And then at week four, this person on a rapidly acting drug, they have a uh, they've achieved a positive score of 5.9. They're 75, they have a more than a 75% reduction in positive score. We call this a positive 75. 
So they're not po they don't have a 90% improvement, but they have more than a 75% improvement, a positive 75. And you see, this guy looks really good. I mean, his psoriasis is pretty much better than when he started off. And before we, the IL-23s and IL-17s came to market, this was the primary endpoint for all of our trials. Because this was like, if you could get this, that was like really good. I mean, we talk about maybe a POSI 50 was a good response also. I never really thought POSI 50 was clinically acceptable. Uh, but when we had less effective therapies, we were lowering the bar. If you're a rheumatologist, maybe you know the feeling, like you have an ACR 20. Who wants an ACR 20? You know, it's like not a lot of improvement. Uh, and I'm sorry, in a POSI 90, uh, is, this is now he is on the far right of your screen. And you can see he's pretty close to clear. He's clear or almost clear at this point in time. And you remember that back to my earlier slide, that question we asked, well, what percentage of people who are clear, almost clear, would meet subjective criteria for changing their therapy? And here's the, here's the uh, data, the answer, if you will, so pay attention to this one. Uh, all right, so this is data we did uh, as part of an NIH-funded study looking at the effectiveness of treatments in real-world, effectiveness of treatments in real-world clinical practice. Consecutive patients at many practices across the country just randomly coming in for their routine follow-up. You look at their skin, you do a posi, they fill out a survey, and that's how we figure out what's going on. Uh, nearly 20% uh, of patients whose skin was only almost clear had uh, moderate or more impairment in health-related quality of life. This was really surprising to me. Okay, I thought like most of these people, were, if they're cl almost clear, they're happy, I'm not gonna do anything differently. Uh, but in fact, it's a big difference for patients to be clear. You know, that's really where they wanna be. When their skin is clear, they have less worry that disease is gonna come back um, uh, and a you know, full, uh, fully um, experience the benefits of their therapy. So increasingly, we're hoping to get people completely clear. That's not always doable, but it's something we're trying to, trying to reach for our patients. We'll show some, uh, some data now. So these are some of the phase three trials, uh, second kinumab versus uh, used to kinumab, looking at over one year time, which is great. One point in time, a week 12, meaningful. It's not, actually. A year is getting closer. Two years, three years, four years, five years, it'd be nice to know long term how the patients are doing and we're getting there. And, and what you should know about the IL 17 is they work really fast. So by week four, uh, they have about 20 to 30% chance of having a POSI 90. Okay, that's pretty amazing if you think about that. And so when I use IL 17s, I like to bring the patient back early. I have them come in at week four because as a clinician, it's extremely gratifying to have a patient who's been living with the disease for 20 years and four weeks later, their skin is clear. I mean, it's like an amazing thing to behold, and, and I like to experience that with my patients. Uh, and this trial, uh, at one year, uh, it continued to have good efficacy, uh, outperforming eustachinumab, although the difference is fairly small, and eustachinumab is a great option. So I wouldn't necessarily say that, oh, well, because of this, you have to use an IL-17 over eustachinumab, again, it gets back to patient preferences, comorbidities, things of that nature. All right, ixekizumab versus ustekinumab, same kind of story here. And, you know, look, by four weeks, nearly 55% uh, nearly of patients have a POSI 75. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. This is brodalumab, and recently a meta-analysis came out uh, suggesting that brodalumab, of all of our drugs, has the most rapid onset of efficacy. Uh, it's probably a smidge better than the other IL-17, so I don't think clinically it's a major thing, but certainly IL-17s work quick. You know, if you have a person who comes in and like, Doc, I'm getting married in three weeks, what should I do? You know, that, that's really your choice, is like, get them an IL-17. Um, all right, and here they're showing it, again, to use the Kinumab, and again, rapid onset, uh, high efficacy, uh, beating an excellent drug. 
All right, so I talked a little bit about isolated psoriasis before genital psoriasis, and this could be a devastating disease for people, and the problem the patients have is that their doctors have been thinking of them for years. We have localized disease, try these topicals, and get out of my office. Uh, and the patients are really, you know, devastated by this. They can't have normal, intimate relationships when they have psoriasis all over their genitals. The patients have is that their doctors have been thinking of them for years. We have localized disease, try these topicals, and get out of my office. Uh, and the patients are really, you know, devastated by this. They can't have normal, intimate relationships when they have psoriasis all over their genitals. And um, uh, Lily, to their credit, did a clinical trial of ixekizumab, uh, proving that uh, it will do quite well for clearing genital psoriasis. So let's see if I can follow this. Um, the blood, yeah, the, so the filled-in uh, dots are uh, clear, almost clear, and roughly 70% uh, of patients are clear, almost clear, uh, and about 40% of patients are completely clear. So that's a pretty remarkable benefit for patients to consider. Uh, and I, I've done this in my practice several times. Uh, personally, I've had more of a mixed bag of effectiveness on this. Uh, and I think a lot of that is because uh, a lot of my patients are pre-treated with other things, which we're waiting for this data. They've been on TNFs, they've been on L17s, they've been on methotrexate, they've been on all sorts of stuff, and maybe they're getting more and more treatment resistant. All right, so I mentioned, I, like, what the F? What, why the F on uh, IL-17, right? Um, they, they have this on a tape delay, Joe, so don't worry. They could, they could beep anything out. Yeah, it's, it's, they'll, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll take it out. This is unbelievable. So this is phase two data, so it's, it's a small sample size. But, you know, at week, let's see if I can read this, at week um, 12, 60% uh, of patients were 100% clear at week 12. Think about it. I mean, that's amazing efficacy. So that gives us some data that blocking IL-17F is important, probably in addition to blocking IL-17A. Um, patients are a little more prone to candle or yeast infections, as we expect, based on the data I showed you earlier, based on MOA. Small trial, I won't get into safety. There's not enough data here to really think about safety. Let's see what we learn in the phase three program. All right, Guselkimab versus Adalimumab. So uh, this is a uh, phase three trial, but they actually did this in phase two, which I think is pretty gutsy. I don't know why you do it. Uh, and again, Adalimumab is an excellent drug. Uh, and the NIL-23 does um, you know, much better, as you see. And again, looking at 48-week endpoint, you see some uh, efficacy tapering off over time for those red squares. It's adalimumab uh, with the, the triangles tend to do better uh, over time uh, with, um, with the 23s. And the other thing I'll notice is that you'll see like at, at week 12, they still get some extra benefit if you keep on going. The 23s, uh, they work well. They work fairly quickly, but they also their peak benefit tends to be a little bit later. You know? So if you have a really tough patient, really stubborn disease at week 12, week 16, and they're not fully where you want them to be, I usually want to wait to week 24, maybe a little bit longer before I decide I'm going to pull, uh, pull off from trying to use that mechanism. This is a clinically helpful piece of information. I got a patient at my clinic. They've been used to Kinumab for five years. Uh, they've been doing well, but every time they come in, they're like, Doc, you know, we're completely clear. So what do I do in this circumstance? Can I use an IL-23? And that essentially is what this trial asked. You know, everyone got used to Kinumab on label, and then if they weren't responding well, they got randomized to Guselkimab or used to Kinumab. And what you can see from uh, the plots in these graphs is that the green dots are people getting Guselkimab, a targeted IL-23, uh, that they do better than those who continue on uh, used to Kinumab uh, over time. Uh, have a higher odds of getting clear, almost clear, and all, all of our other metrics that we have available to us here. 
um, and it's a fairly sustainable uh, response. So this is really important information from a biological point of view, right? Because what it's told us is at the time, people thought IL-12 was important to psoriasis pathophysiology. Uh, this in humans is now telling us it probably is not, right? Because a drug that just blocks 23 does better than a drug that blocks 23 and 12. And then the most recent kit in the block in the 23 club, tildrakizumab versus, uh, versus uh, atanercept. Um, anyone want to postulate why they compared it to atanercept as opposed to, uh, okay, I won't put people on the spot here, but you'll see in a minute. So, but it works well, and it's FDA approved. All right, um, well, I went backwards now, which is, uh-oh, I hope I didn't press the wrong button. Okay, so here's some rizinkizumab data, uh, kind of a boring table. This is from the Lancet. Uh, but again, this is the newest uh, IL-23, uh, which you come out pretty soon, any minute, if anyone's refreshed. Uh, is Len tweeting about it? Follow Len's uh, Twitter and see if he said anything about it. All right. Um, so here what we see is at week 16, 37% uh, clear are clear. And at week 52, nearly 60% are clear. I mean, that's amazing, Right. You know, 60% with complicated inflammatory disease at a year, 60% of people are pretty much clear. And again, uh, recapitulates what I mentioned to you earlier, which is that uh, be a little patient with these drugs. I mean, that's amazing, right? You know, 60% with complicated inflammatory disease at a year, 60% of people are pretty much clear. And again, uh, recapitulates what I mentioned to you earlier, which is that uh, be a little patient with these drugs. You know, they're not all the way there at week 12, week 24. Consider sticking in it a little bit longer to see where you, where you go because there seems to be some cumulative benefit uh, over time. All right, and so this is an eye chart. Uh, those in the back of the room, if you could just tell me which line you're able to <laughs> see. It's a multi we don't have ophthalmology in our group yet, but I figured I'd throw that in there. We have one for uveitis, something like that. I want to throw something in there for the eye docs. All right, um, so uh, what they're basically, so this is an IL-23 IL inhibitor phase two data, uh, and what they're basically showing is that roughly 60% of patients dosed every eight weeks uh, get a POSI 90. So it's, pr it's pretty darn good. It's pretty close uh, to guselkimab, and I'll show you that. Missions, as, as think about what is our treatment approach going to be, you know, I have an armamentarium. I have a myriad of topical medications and vehicles. I have oral medications. I have uh, phototherapy, phototherapeutic modalities, and I have uh, multiple different classes of biologics, and within class, multiple different ones to choose from. Uh, actually, that should be, t that should be say TNF-4. I, I did not get updated somehow. We have four TNFs approved for psoriasis. Um, so the way I talk about my patients, when I know they need something more in topicals, I explain we have ultraviolet light treatments, we have pills, we have injectable medications. And Based on what I already know about the patient, why I have some of their preferences and their comorbidities, I'm already thinking about how I want to steer the conversation to where I think they can be best served. And at the end of the discussion, the question is, well, you know, how do you feel about this discussion? What would you like to do? Uh, and we have an electronic portal. Oftentimes I say, we don't have to decide right this second. You can go home. We'll get your blood work done, screen things, make sure things are good, and we can decide which direction you want to go. And then after the things, make sure things are good, and we can decide which direction you want to go. And then after this... Uh, very uh, cogent and, uh, dare I say, brilliant analysis of the appropriate therapy for the patient. I uh, put in an electronic prescription to my uh, pharmacy, uh, and then I'm told I have to do something else by the, uh, by the um, HMO, whatever it is. So. Uh, and then we restart the conversation all over again. But such is the way uh, current medical practice is. 
these are here for summary charts for you. It's a lot to keep straight in your head. I mean, I, I live, breathe, and think psoriasis all the time. I have a huge research program on psoriasis. I see mainly psoriasis patients. So for me, this is like the back of my hand, but it's hard to keep it straight. So this is looking at TNF, uh, the dosing regimens for our various classes of drugs. So you know, for TNFs, you have regimens that go from uh, weekly to every two weeks uh, to monthly to every eight weeks. Uh, it's important to recognize if you're a rheumatologist, a lot of times the dosing of our drugs is higher than when you're using it for joint disease. So the dosing of sertralizumab is generally double, 400 milligrams we offer people uh, every two weeks, uh, which is twice what you would do in psoriatic arthritis, for example. Um, then used to kinumab is in every 12. Um, then used to kinumab is in every 12-week drug. Kuselkimab uh, every eight week. Teldrakizumab every 12. So a little bit of advantage there. Um, Rizinkizumab, when that comes out, will likely be every, will, I'm sure will be every 12. Uh, ICSI and secukinumab are every four weeks with a big loading dose in the beginning. And then brodalumab is every two weeks. And there's a lot of patients out there we just find in practice who just need constant drug that you can't dose them every month. And so an every two-week option is nice. So sometimes with crescent, I'm sorry, excuse me, secukinumab, uh, you can dose them, uh, this would be off-label, but instead of giving them two 150 milligram injections once a month, I do one every two weeks. And for some patients, that helps them have better control of their disease throughout time. All right, so then you need to be aware of the uh, important biologically driven uh, adverse events. And the good news is that most of these things are uncommon. Like the things we really worry about are fairly uncommon, unlikely to affect your patient. Um, and if you're not treating a lot of patients, you'll probably never see it because you really need to treat probably a few hundred patients to pick these things up because they're uncommon. Um, you know, the TNFs have much busier prescribing information. Some of that's based on the fact that they've been have done. But you need to know that they can be prone to serious infections, malignancies, uh, demyelinization, uh, ag aggravation of congestive heart failure, and that it carries black box warnings. So when we're counseling, you know, the patient has to be aware of this. You don't want them to be surprised when they get home and they Google it, and they're like, oh, yeah, this is completely safe. Go take it. And you can take it even if you're pregnant. And they, they read this stuff, and they feel like, that you don't either know what you're doing or you don't care to tell them what's happening. All right, then uh, the uh, 23s and the 17s. So these have currently uh, easier labeling. Uh, some of that is driven by the fact they do seem rather safe. Uh, a lot of it's also driven by the fact that they usually use monotherapy. They're not being studied intensively yet with a lot of prednisone and azathioprine and things of that nature. So we don't really know as much about what happens when you start using it in other scenarios. Uh, but basically, we used to kinumab because it has an IL-12 effect. The FDA thinks theoretically it could increase the risk of malignancy. There really hasn't been much data to prove that. Uh, but basically, we used to kinumab because it has an IL-12 effect. The FDA thinks theoretically it could increase the risk of malignancy. There really hasn't been much data to prove that. The observational data is pretty reassuring to date. And then there's this one bizarre case of reversible posterior leukoencephalopathy that occurred in the program, and therefore people are convinced that whenever they have a headache, that they have some type of neurologic problem from the drug, but it really has not been seen much. Um, so the patient has to be counseled about that. Uh, but then the IL-23s, gosalkimab, teldrakizumab, you know, the, the main things is uh, warnings around serious infections that are, are quite uncommon. Uh, that's the main thing we uh, counsel them about. The IL-17s, uh, they need to be counseled about infections, of course. They need to be counseled about uh, yeast infections. And so people who already have like women who say, I have problems with yeast infections regularly, I would steer away from IL-17. There's no need to push that issue uh, if they have other options available to them. But usually it's easily managed. Uh, in some cases, people could develop a esophageal 
candidiasis or that. This is people often misdiagnosed and, and, and um, uh, uh, havoc ensues, right? They're having a heart attack, they have cancer, all these terrible things, you know, they just need a little nice statin switch and swallow and, and it goes away, a little diflucan. Uh, usually that's uh, heartburn, that doesn't get better with uh, standard um, treatment of heartburn, uh, and often they may have some uh, oral uh, pharyngeal um, thrush going on. Uh, they also have a warning for inflammatory bowel disease, exacerbation of or, ins or uh, initiation of. And so like the patient I talked about earlier, you know, people have a strong family history of Crohn's disease. It's a very emotional situation for them. They have a, they have a genetic load. They'd be more likely to develop Crohn's. And having practiced now for about 20 years, I have at least four or five patients who are on TNF inhibitors and came off them for whatever reason and developed ulcerative colitis fairly rapidly thereafter. And then the debate is, well, did the TNF inhibitor, no one thinks the TNF inhibitor caused the ulcerative colitis. The thinking is, oh, well, you were, pre you were preventing it the whole time, which who knows if that's true or not. But either you were preventing it the whole time, which who knows if that's true or not. But obviously, if you're using a drug that has a warning for it and they develop it, there's going to be more uh, concern amongst the patients. So you got to counsel them carefully, and I then monitor them for the symptoms when they come up and follow up. And then brodalumab had uh, a, a safety signal in its phase three program. There was an imbalance in number of suicidal events in those getting the drug versus placebo. There wasn't much of a correlation between the duration of being on the drug. A lot of these people had heavy risk factors. There were some clusterings at one of the sites. And for those who know suicidal epidemiology, it's not uncommon that you have one suicide, there will be others in the community that then go along with it. It's a sort of a tragic situation. So, you know, the causality is clearly not known. Uh, many of us think it's sort of a false signal, but we're stuck with it having a black box warning. There's a REMS program the patient has to, has to register for. So if they weren't anxious and depressed before you started this medication, I guarantee you they will be. The odds of having a POSI 90 at the primary endpoint, week 12 or week 16, depending on the trial. Um, the blue bar is what the black background placebo uh, rate was. Um, and you can see, you know, the drugs really distinguish themselves when you set a high bar. So, you know, Premolast, about 9% of patients hit a POSI 90. You know, so the odds of your patient getting clear on that drug is pretty low when it comes down to it. You've got to treat a lot of people to get that kind of good response. Um, you know, with adalimumab, an excellent drug, you're looking around 45% probability of getting there, similar to use to kinumab. Then when we get to the IL-17s and Broda and ICSI, you know, it goes up. So kinumab is around 57%, Broda and ICSI are higher, 70%. Kiselkimab is a kizumab in the 73 to 75%. You remember I showed you bimekizumab data. You know, that data... Uh, bears out that was 80% were clear, 100% clear, right? So, no, no, I'm sorry, it's POSI 90, POSI 90. So uh, we may even achieve higher than we currently have. And then Tildra and IL-23 were clear, 100% clear, right? So, no, no, I'm sorry, it's POSI 90, POSI 90. So uh, we may even achieve higher than we currently have. And then Tildra and IL-23, 37% um, probability of getting POSI uh, 90 at primary endpoint. So it tells you, again, that the, the antibody you use matters. You can't just say, oh, I'm just going to do a 23. They're all the same. They all had their nuances in terms of dosing, frequency, and, and outcome. Uh, the other thing I have to be aware of is that in the real world, people tend to not respond as well as we would predict based on clinical, clinical trials data. So on the left side of your screen is data from my network. This is now getting older data because we don't have the, novel, the newer biologics on it. But the histogram shows their odds of being clear, almost clear in the data they showed up in practice on their therapy. The horizontal bar is what they should have been based on the clinical trial data. So you can see for adalimumab, you know, about 65% should have been clear, almost clear, and we're really around 42% or something like that, 48%. 
And it, the story is worse if people were obese, multiple biologics in the past, things of that nature. And then the second thing to think about is what we call cumulative drug survival uh, of our therapies. So as a general rule, uh, the biologics tend to lose response over time at different rates. Some of that uh, we think may be related to development of drug neutralizing antibodies, but a lot of it's probably not that. It's probably other pharmacodynamic processes that we don't fully understand. Um, now, this is sort of new data that comes out of Denmark. Uh, generally speaking, the studies consistently show that ustekinumab does the best for long-term drug survival. Uh, these data suggest that secukinumab is not doing as well as we would have predicted, uh, but it's small data. It's only a handful of patients, I think 20 to 40 or something like that. Uh, even looking at naive patients had the same problem. I'll, I'll say in my own practice, I've had patients lose response uh, to that therapy over time, but again, they tend to be fairly treatment-resistant people. Uh, and if you think about biologic, what's going on is I'm starting them off, giving them 300 milligrams weekly for five weeks, and then six months later, they're coming down to a different steady state. So for some of my patients, can you have the illusion response? I could often regain response by reloading them uh, and then hiding out from the insurance company for a little bit because it's an expensive way to manage this disease. I'm just going to close with some recommendations from the AAD guidelines, which are coming out now. They're available online, uh, and I was a part of this uh, robust group. Um, and they're really dense. They're like, they must be, I don't know, 1,050 pages. It's like, it's even longer. I don't even know. Uh, anyway, so, um, but I'll, I'll have some pearls for you. And as a clinician, it's helpful to know, like, where is their data that you're going to go to an insurance company and say, well, this is why I'm doing this, this is why you should cover it, okay? So for Tanercept, uh, there's data showing that adults with moderate serious rise affecting the scalp or nails. It's effective for the scalp and the nails. So someone has nail disease or scalp disease, use as monotherapy. In Fliximab, we have data showing you use it at a shorter interval and going up to 10 milligrams per kilogram. That's really helpful because, the, you know, we know there's higher risk of side effects with higher dosing. And so it's nice to know there's data uh, that we recommend uh, 40 megs once a week for better control in some patients. We often have to do that in clinical practice. You now have level A data uh, to justify that. And then uh, monotherapy, people would just uh, survive affecting the palms and soles or just affecting the nails. Now, plenty of people would just have isolated nail disease. And I have level A, da level a data uh, to suggest that I could use this, and I, and I do. And I will say, I did have one primary care doctor once uh, tell the patient, uh, was I crazy uh, to treat her nail disease with a biologic? Uh, now, I won't unpack that question, uh, but uh, I, I will say that, um, that from an evidence-based medicine point of view, I was not crazy, right? And her nails cleared to do quite well. All right, uh, then let's talk about the IL-12, 23s, 17s, and 23s. So used to Kinumab, we recommend alternative dosages uh, in people who are, if people are less than 100 kilos, we recommend dosing at 90 milligrams if necessary or every eight weeks because we know a lot of people need every eight-week dosing that because we know a lot of people need every eight-week dosing that's what clinical practice has taught us and trials have backed that up. Uh, Secukinumab is recommended level A evidence for people with uh, psoriasis affecting nails or pommel plantar plaque psoriasis. The pustular variant, it seems beneficial, but it didn't really meet its primary endpoint. A pommel plantar pustular disease is very hard to treat. All right, and then guselkimab recommended for monotherapy in people with scalp, nail, plaque-type pommel plantar psoriasis. Okay, so when you get the epic in-basket message from the GP saying, are you nuts while using a biologic for this person? They only have a small amount of body. You're like, I have level A evidence that this is an appropriate thing to do. And it also works for the insurance company sometimes. Um, and then this is meant to be a summary chart. You know, uh, I don't know if any of you watch Plinko uh, from this game called The Price is Right. Uh, Bob Barker. Yeah. Bob Barker's the host, right? Uh, so um, the way it would work is you would take a chip, you'd put it at the top, 
it would bounce around, uh, music, good music, and then it would get to the bottom. I'm gonna get myself in trouble. They're gonna turn off my microphone in a second. All right, it would get to the bottom, and then either you've got nothing or you want a jackpot. Good things happen, and and that often is how it feels in clinical practice. You know, we don't have uh, uh, personalized medicine to the extent that we could say this is your genetic phenotype. This is the drug you should use. Um, and so, to me, I, I think about their comorbidities, their preferences, and that's how I try and target which therapy I'm going to use. So, you know, the patient is on a nervous side; they want long-term data. You know, TNFs we have 20 more than 20 years experience. I mean, I have some patients on TNF inhibitors from the original trials back in the early, the late 90s. Um, psoriatic arthritis, according to the ACR guidelines, they view um, TNFs as a gold standard. I personally believe that IL-17s are probably a very good option for these people as well. Uh, the IL-12, 23s uh, are approved, but not generally figured to be as, as beneficial. And we'll see what happens with the 23s. Uh, they have Crohn's disease or fear of Crohn's disease. Well, we have adalimumab, sertolizumab, infliximab, all options for these people as well. Uh, the IL-12, 23s uh, are approved, but not generally figured to be as, as beneficial. And we'll see what happens with the 23s. Uh, they have Crohn's disease or fear of Crohn's disease. Well, we have adalimumab, sertolizumab, infliximab, all approved for skin and bowel disease, uh, as is ustekinumab at higher dosing. Uh, and there's a warning of IL-17. Uh, when talked a little about uh, issues of cardiovascular risk in people, and we know there's lots of observational data that TNF inhibitors seem to lower the risk of, of cardiovascular events over time. Uh, if you like this talk, stay till Sunday. I'm going to really dissect that data in great detail about whether or not we think that's a causal effect or not. Um, but we don't have that data for the other drugs. It's emerging. Uh, they have a background of congestive heart failure. We usually stick away from the TNFs. They have multiple sclerosis. And again, you got to ask specifically. So I uh, say, so ever had any medical problems? No. Ever had uh, multiple sclerosis? No. Ever had demyelinization or Guillain-Barre? No. Ever had optic arthritis? Program going forward there with a more avid antibody. The, 23, uh, the 12 23s uh, had no effect, no harm, no benefit in trials. Uh, ease of administration, you're really in the 12 23 or 23 range there. If they're obese, you want higher efficacy drugs. If you need rapid onset, you're looking at IL-17s. If you're looking to win the game over the long haul, you're a marathon runner as a clinician, probably the 23 pathway. So much. I'm all over time, so I won't take questions, but I'll be around throughout the weekend. And uh, welcome to the IS. Welcome back for those who have been here before. And I uh, hope you